Welcome to this week's episode of the North Bible Church Podcast. Now, let's join our pastor as we open God's Word together. Good morning, everybody. Great to see you all here. Uh, What a great Sunday. It's always a great Sunday when we have an opportunity to have some baptisms. We had a baptism first service. Uh, Holly O'Neill was baptized, and of course, Paige Coe was baptized here this service. So congratulations. It's always great to celebrate that. Uh, That baptistry is really difficult to set up, or or so I've heard. I don't do it. But uh, (laughs) every time it's worth it, though. It's worth it. And so... uh, and so that's, it's worth it when we get to pull that thing out and get to baptize people and celebrate what God's doing in their lives. So uh, great to be here with you guys. Thank you for joining us uh, this morning. And we are continuing our series on the book of Revelation uh, today. We're going to be actually in the fifth week, believe it or not. We're already in week five of this journey, this odyssey through the book of Revelation. And this morning we're going to be looking at Revelation chapter 4. And before we do, you know, we've spent the first four weeks, if you've been with us, laying what we've called a a groundwork or a foundation for studying the book of Revelation. I think more than any other book in the Bible, it's important that we come to the book of Revelation with a proper interpretive lens. We've been calling it an interpretive lens, a way of seeing uh, this book from from the way that we believe God wants us to understand it. Uh, Because it is a difficult book to interpret and because there are all kinds of different approaches to interpreting uh, this book. But uh, I think one of the things that we've talked about in all this that I really want to highlight this morning is there's a bunch of things that we could highlight, but the one thing in particular as we get started into chapter 4 this morning is a reminder that um, the book of Revelation is not unlike all of the other books in Scripture. Even though we read it and it seems to be so different than maybe other books that we read, at the same time, I think one thing that's important for us to remember is that the book of Revelation is not kind of this uh, stepchild in the, in the canon, right? It's not a stepchild in, in the Bible. It's actually a part of, and it's connected to in a lot of ways and does the exact same thing that a lot of the other books that we're reading in the Old Testament and in the New Testament are trying to do. And in a lot of ways, I think actually it's, it's important that we remember that because the book of Revelation is actually the conclusion to Scripture. There's a reason why this book is the last book in the Bible that we have. Because it actually ties together all of this big story that God has been writing since the beginning, starting in Genesis and going all the way through human history to get us to a point where he's bringing us to a conclusion, a fulfillment, an end to what he has promised that he is going to do. That his redemptive purposes are being brought to bear in this book as we see it and as we read it. And so I think it's important for us to understand that because just like many other books that we might read, you may realize that the ending in a lot of ways is the best part of the story. And leaving the book of Revelation off is like watching a movie and kind of getting up after, getting up, you know, with the last 10, 15 minutes uh, uh, remaining and walking away and not watching the end of the movie. Or reading through a chapter book and putting the book down before you get to the last chapter. In a lot of ways, it's the ending that begins to tie everything together. And I think as we approach the book of Revelation from that perspective, what we'll see is that that's exactly what God is doing. And in many ways, I've just... I don't know. I don't know what it's been, but through this study, I've really warmed up to this book, and I consider it actually one of the best parts of Scripture at this point as as we've gone through it, at least in the way that it's hit me through this series and through this study. So hopefully it's doing that for you as well, and hopefully if it hasn't, uh, it will at some point as we continue through this series because it has a lot of things to say to us to encourage us. Let's talk a minute about, about why this is so important, though. I think as we talk about, you know, why it is that narrative and story is so important, I think it's important to think through this, right? Um, in, in many ways, narrative and story give us purpose and meaning as human beings. 
We talk a lot about constructing narratives and those kinds of things, and people will construct narratives from just like a few isolated facts or from some kind of experience in their life, and we'll talk about constructing some kind of narrative beyond that. Well, the reason that we construct narratives is not necessarily because we're trying to be deceptive or malicious in any way or because we just have an agenda. The reason that human beings actually construct narratives is because we realize that we get meaning from that. Stories bring us meaning and purpose, and they help us understand the world that we live in. That's just kind of how we've built, how we're built. And I think God created us in that way so that we would be able to engage with the story of Scripture that He has given us, the narrative, the meta-narrative of Scripture that explains everything about who we are, who God is, and what He is doing in the world, and where He's bringing it all to end. And this is where we get the book of Revelation, why it's so indispensable in terms of studying what God's story is all about and where it's actually headed. And I think in the process, one of the things that God is doing in this is that he's calling us out of the stories of the world that we may so easily get entrapped with, that we might so easily find ourselves involved in, and calling us to this, what we might call a new creation story that he's pointing us to in the end. And so as we've talked about already in this series, this is why this book is made up of what uh, we know as an apocalypse. We're going to see actually uh, the apocalypse, the big apocalyptic vision that makes up the meat of the book of Revelation start here today. In chapter 4, we actually see the beginning of this vision that John gets that's going to dominate the rest of the book really until Revelation chapter 21. And if you know, there's 22 chapters in the book of Revelation, so it basically takes, a part, it takes, takes the rest of the book to get through this one large vision that starts here today. And the reason that John gets this vision is to remind us, part of the, part of the uh, 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 message is in the medium, is that it's reminding us that what really exists and what is real from God's perspective is not necessarily the things that we can see with our eyes in this world and the things that we can physically touch with our hands and the, the experience that we have in this world. In many ways, those things can be misleading. And ultimately, what God is trying to help us see is that there's a reality behind what we often see and in terms of what He is doing from His perspective. And He is bringing us to that place, that this story that God has already written, He is revealing to us and moving us towards. So as we continue our series and we start into chapter 4 today, Here's a couple of things that we need to know. First of all, chapter 4 and 5, the one we're looking at this week is chapter 4. We'll be looking at chapter 5 next week. Actually go together as a pair. They're like two sides of the same coin. And they start us off really in this scene of the heavenly throne room. John gets pulled up into the heavenly throne room and he sees what is going on from God's perspective. He sees really behind the curtain. And as he does, this forms really for us what we have called an interpretive lens, which helps us to see the rest of uh, the book of Revelation from this perspective. These two chapters are so critically important in understanding and interpreting all of the various images and symbols that are going to come at us throughout this book. And one of the big issues, of course, that you have to deal with when it comes to interpreting the book of Revelation is how to interpret all of those various symbols and images. How do you make sense of all these different symbols and images that seem so strange. We're going to talk about creatures with eyes that are covering their bodies today. That's part of what John sees. How in the world do you make sense of what that means? And, and really, how do you get to a place where it actually applies to our situation today and, and makes any difference in our lives right now? And depending on how you interpret those symbols, then, it can really de determine how you understand the entire book. Because in reality, this is the most important part about interpreting Revelation, how we understand the images and the symbols that we see that come at us constantly. And I, I say that because, for instance, I think some people may see the symbols in the book of Revelation not 
Uh, we're, we're approaching it from the standpoint of this is a lens that God is showing us about what he's doing in the world. But there are some actual interpretations and approaches that actually often see these symbols and images as a bunch of codes that need to be cracked for the purpose of figuring out kind of the end of the world in some ways. Right? You know, the, the code-cracking approach is built on taking kind of various symbols from the book of Revelation and trying to decipher the symbols as something that points to specific people or specific events that are happening in human history. You may have encountered this interpretation from time to time. It's actually pretty popular in, in the church. But the code approach is built on the assumption that God has given us revelation so that we can see the, what are often called the signs of the times. In other words, that we can be aware of when the end of the world is coming or really when the second coming of Jesus is going to arrive. And the sentiment of that approach, I think, is certainly understandable. I mean, I understand that completely. I would love to know when Jesus is coming again, wouldn't you? But what, what we have to understand, what we have to ask is, is, is that how God meant for us to understand this book? Is, is, this, is this the primary purpose for which God wrote Revelation? I mean, growing up in the church, I have to say, this was the dominant interpretive approach that I experienced. And I remember somebody sitting me down one time and saying, and talking about particular the mark of the beast that we see happen in Revelation, right? And they were explaining to me that the mark of the beast is going to be like some kind of chip or some kind of credit card that you'll get one day. And you have, to be, you have to be aware of the fact that that credit card might be the mark of the beast. So that if you get that credit card, that makes you one of the, the people of the beast, so to speak, right? And I remember being so afraid of that, right? Because what if... What if I got to a place in my life where I didn't recognize that that new Visa Rewards card is actually the credit card of the beast? And if I apply for that card and I get that card and I use that card, does that make me one of the people of the beasts? Even though Jesus has saved me and redeemed me and even though Jesus has brought me into salvation, even though Jesus has put his spirit, like it can all be undone by that? And that approach was always confusing and frightening to me. And as I grew up and understood more of the Bible, I began to understand why. It doesn't line up with the gospel of Jesus. Look, in the end, it's like the gospel tells us that what matters is our faith in Jesus as far as being faithful and being people who are of the new creation and being people who will be redeemed and brought to Christ. And yet, this was basically saying you have to crack a code at the end of time or you're doomed to be separated from Jesus as a follower of the beast. So, his power, so on the one hand, his salvation is powerful enough to save you from every sin you've ever committed, past, present, and future, and to resurrect your life from the dead so that you will live for eternity with him in a new creation, but not strong enough to save you from applying for the wrong credit card. I realize that's a bit of an extreme interpretation, but I, I did see a couple of heads nodding along at least, so I'm not alone in, in this kind of interpretation maybe that's been put out there, but as one scholar put it, no other part of the Bible has provided such a happy hunting ground for all sorts of bizarre and dangerous interpretations as the book of Revelation has. And so I think he has a point here. I mean, consider some of the derivatives of those interpretations, right? There's the mark of the beast, but then there's also this question of the identity of who the beast is. Other interpretations have claimed, though, that John F. Kennedy and Pope John Paul II were the beast in Revelation, because they suffered wounds to their heads just as the beast in Revelation does. And so you can see how quickly, if we don't have an understanding of what actually is being communicated here, and we don't root it in the proper perspective and interpretation, that our interpretations can go wildly off the rails. 
And so for this reason, and I think we're, we're going to talk about it a little bit more today and as we continue, as we approach the symbolism from this book, which really starts to get intense in this chapter, this is why I'm doing this whole thing with us this morning, so that we can be prepared for what we're going to, uh, what we're going to encounter, is that we are approaching it from the standpoint of this being a lens. These symbols providing us with a lens to see what God is doing and where he's bringing all of his redemptive purposes to bear. And that we are rooting the understanding of these symbols in context. Biblical context, where we see they're connected from Old Testament to New, and also the historical context of how these things would have been understood in the first century. So, Revelation, we may realize, then, is a book of blessing, as it tells us in chapter 1. And a book of hope, because the redemptive story of God is being revealed and fulfilled in this book. And God's word is about then revealing to us with more clarity and conviction what he is doing even right now and what he has planned to do in the end. And it's not designed to confuse us, to scare us, to create chaos in our minds about future signs that may or may not come, but to give us hope based upon what God promised he will do to save us through Jesus and how he is making that happen even now through his church, even when it doesn't look like it just by looking at the world around us. Now, the symbols then will serve as a reminder of the saving power of Jesus as the one who overcame sin and death, so that the purpose of the book is that we can be challenged and comforted in our faith to stay focused and faithful to Jesus, who is the point of the biblical story and who is the point of this book as well. So, I know that's a lot of setup, but again, I want to set us with the right approach before we embark on this journey through the rest of the book of Revelation, because once we get into this chapter, it's like getting buckled into a, a roller coaster, and they put the harness on you, and you know, like, once they put the harness on you, there's no turning back, right? And that's kind of what these next 23 weeks are going to be as we go through this vision. It's all one big vision. We're going to spend 23 weeks on it. So once we open up and start reading in, in Revelation chapter 4, there's no turning back. But, but, but just like a great roller coaster, it's going to be fun and exciting. I don't want it to scare you. Again, this is something that's going to be fun and exciting and hopefully very encouraging and edifying and challenging to us as well. So let's read through Revelation. Let's start uh, in chapter 4 this morning. We're going to be uh, in verse 1. We're going to read through the entire chapter, which is... 11 verses, and I want to encourage you that wherever you're reading from, it'll be on the screens around us, but if you have a Bible or if you have a Bible app, pull that out and read along with us, because we're going to be referring to a lot of symbolism that's going on here, and I want you to be able to make those connections. We have a lot to cover today, and I'm going to go through it kind of quickly, and so I, I, don't, I don't want you to feel like this is kind of, you know, going too far over your head, but uh, so, so it'll help you to just kind of track through as we're reading through this, but it says in verse 1, after this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he, sat there, and he who sat there had an appearance of jasper and carnelian. And, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Now around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. Now from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne and on each side of the throne are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. 
Now, the first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, and the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. And they cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. All right, so we're off. We've officially entered into the apocalypse of this book, the vision of this book, which of course doesn't mean apocalypse not meaning the end of the world, but apocalypse meaning a revelatory vision that John is given. And as we're told, John is brought from the earth up into heaven, and what he sees as he looks around is basically a heavenly worship service. He sees creatures, and he sees, he sees uh, 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 human-like figures as elders worshiping before the throne of God. And what we have here is what is known actually as a theophany. And a theophany means a vision of God or a revelation of God. Chapter 4 is a theophany. Chapter 5 is actually a Christophany where we see Jesus in very much the same kinds of terms. But what we see here is just this vision of God. And what begins to dominate the scene is a vision of the throne of God. And we're going to talk about the significance of that here in a minute. But here's something that I want to remind us of. Is, is that we understand these symbols in their original, original setting. What we're getting back to is, of course, understanding them in their Old Testament, uh, uh, their Old Testament context and their biblical context. We talked about a couple weeks ago, depending on your count, there's almost a thousand different Old Testament references in the book of Revelation. And we see several of those happen right here in chapter 4. You may have actually picked up on a few of them if you're familiar with uh, Old Testament theophanies. You guys familiar with Old Testament theophanies? <laughs> Probably not a lot of us. But if you are, you may have picked up on a few of these. You might have seen something like from Ezekiel, for example, that might have reminded you of the four creatures that are here. But this is the context that we're exploring. And as these symbols begin to come to life, and as we see these symbols kind of fleshed out through the book of Revelation, they begin to start to connect us to them. So as we connect really to these symbols that are previously seen in the book of Revelation or, 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 or seen as we move forward or seen in other places of Scripture, they begin to kind of call out a response from us. And the more that those symbols are understood by us, the more that we begin to respond to them. For instance, think about it this way. I'm going to throw up a slide. I brought a slide of a bunch of familiar symbols. Right? So these are all familiar uh, logos and symbols that we are probably all familiar with. As we look at those, even the ones that don't have words, we can immediately associate those with brands, and we could probably associate some of those with experiences. As we look at them, maybe one of them in particular might be making you hungry or nostalgic. I think about McDonald's, it was like, makes me nostalgic about Happy Meals when I was a kid, right? Nike, right, might motivate you to go, I want to go work out, possibly. Um, I, I don't know, maybe. Uh, Starbucks, maybe go get a coffee, right? Those kinds of things. I look at Amazon and it makes me respond in a way in which I want to shop, which I don't know, is that, that, that's probably not a good thing, but that's kind of how I respond. But it, the, the point is, is that all of these symbols have cause a reaction in us because they are embedded in the life that we live in. We understand what these symbols mean. And as we move through the book of Revelation in the same way, these are just kind of corporate symbols and logos, but in the same way these symbols are designed to evoke a response from us, the more and the better that we understand them. And remember what the original recipients of the letter were going through. 
They were living in a world that was chaotic, a world in which they were persecuted for their faith, a world which was evil and unjust, where everywhere they looked, things looked different than what the kingdom of God was supposed to look like, right? They saw people who were worshiping Roman gods. They saw people who were unjust. They saw people who were evil. They saw people who were persecuting them. And those were the people who were actually flourishing. Those were the people who were successful. Those were the people who were doing well in life. And then you've got these group of Christians who are following or trying to be faithful to the one true God in Scripture, and they are the ones who are suffering. They're the ones who are experiencing persecution. They're the ones who are experiencing difficulty. And they might have been asking themselves at this point, what does it matter that God says he is on his throne if there is so much evil and death in this world and that God's people are suffering so much on this earth? What does it mean that God's on his throne when that is all of that we can see around us? Now, that's a question really that any generation of the church could ask in human history, including our own. What does it matter to say that God is actually on his throne? Well, Revelation Chapter 4 answers that concern for us. First, John is taken into a heavenly vision by the Holy Spirit to the throne room of God. And he's taken to this place where the focus is essentially on the throne right there. And it comes to us as a theophany, as we said earlier. And this theophany reminds us of other theophanies in Scripture like Isaiah chapter 6, Ezekiel 1, Exodus 3, and Daniel 7. And as one scholar has said, this is, really has elements of all of those different well-known theophanies in, in the Old Testament, these revelations of God, these visions of God, so much so that it's almost like this vision in particular from Revelation chapter 4 is like a symphony of theophanies. It's almost like the fulfillment of all of those theophanies, all those visions of God we're pointing to. They're ultimately finding their fulfillment and their meaning right here in Revelation chapter 4. And so as we look at the scene that John sees unfolding in front of him, let's start with first the big image that he sees here. He sees, of course, the throne. And the fact that he sees the throne is important. You know, we don't need to really dive too much into ancient uh, contextual understanding to understand the meaning behind the throne. The throne represents a king. Represents a king who is sovereign in power, who sets up and rules his kingdom. And these mentions in Revelation chapter 4 of the throne are the first of 38 references to the throne of heaven that are going to happen throughout this vision. So this is a big theme, important theme throughout this vision. But what we see here is the throne of heaven, not merely just the throne of Caesar, not merely just the throne of any other king. Instead, it is the very place of power over the entire created universe. And as John records this, and the original recipients would have heard it, they're reminded that although God is in heaven, he still reigns over all of his creation on the earth. So even though they suffer and struggle, they're reminded that God has not lost control, that God still sees them, that God is bringing everything that happens on earth to, uh, to a place, uh, that, to its intended place of fulfillment, I should say. And the throne is the center of the vision, but it's also the center of the created cosmos, the created universe. And this is modeled by all of the creatures who are in this vision. Notice that they are situated around the throne. Every single one of them, whether, they, whether they're the elders or the creatures that represent all of creation, they're situated around their throne. And their entire focus, all they are doing is focused on worshiping and praising the throne of God. And the message of the scene then is pretty clear that all aspects of creation find our significance and meaning and purpose from the proper place around the throne of God, around their creator, with their gaze on their creator, giving glory and worship to their creator. 
So then around the throne, John also sees precious stones like jasper and emerald. And each of these represent, of course, the glory of God. If you're familiar with the book of Revelation, you may know that by the time we get to the end, where we see the new heavens and the new earth, the city, the, the new Jerusalem, the city of New Jerusalem is, is presented as coming out of the heavens onto the earth, presented by precious stones. And so precious stones represent for us new creation. And what you already see here is kind of this inkling of new creation. It's almost the, the already not yet reality of this. It's the promise of new creation just by seeing these precious stones that are present in this initial scene. It's pointing us and foreshadowing to ultimate new creation when God will bring the city of the new Jerusalem, new creation to earth. Now, God is doing, the point here is that God is doing a new thing. And he's already started it. These precious stones represent the promise of new creation. And they represent the presence of new creation even among the church already. And John looks a little closer and then he begins to see a rainbow that's around the throne. The rainbow, of course, reminds us of what in Scripture? It reminds us of Noah, right? The time of Noah. In particular, the promise that God makes to Noah through the, what is known as the Noahic Covenant, where God promised that judgment, that out of his judgment, that he would never judge his creation in the same way in covering uh, the earth with a flood again. But I think really the bigger picture here is the story of Noah, which lines up in a lot of ways to our reality. Is that just like Noah, evil runs rampant on the earth. Just like during the time of Noah, I should say, evil runs rampant on the earth. That God sees it, that God will judge it, and remove all evil from the earth and will bring new creation out of the judgment. Just as the floodwaters dissipated and there was a new world after the floodwaters, after judgment, in the same way there is judgment that will come, but after judgment, new creation. It ushers in hope and new creation. And it's only through judgment that God will remove all evil and sin and brokenness from his creation so that the new heavens and the new earth will be completely righteous and holy and new. And we've talked about previously how judgment brings hope to God's people. And this is exactly what this looks like, that judgment has to take place in order for the hope of new creation to come through in the end. And we're going to see many places in the book of Revelation that have to do with judgment. Um, uh, in, a lot of in a lot of ways, that's, uh, uh, that's what makes this book so uh, scary at times, quite honestly, to see these harsh scenes of judgment. But in the end, they're presented as uh, as hope, because they're necessary for sin and evil to be removed from the world. Now, from the scene involving natural new creation, John then turns to focus on who is gathered around that throne. And what he says he sees is 24 other thrones with 24 elders who are clothed with white garments and crowns on their heads. Now, the 24 elders are, are, are most likely angel, angelic-type beings who are representing God's people of the Old Testament and God's people of the New Testament. Twelve tribes of Israel represented by twelve of the elders, and then the other twelve elders representing God's people of the New Testament, representing the apostles on whom the church was founded and started, right? And so what you've got is this representation of the 24 elders who all have white garments, representing the fact that they are clothed in the righteousness and the holiness of Jesus. We see that with the seven churches in chapters 2 and 3, right? And, and also with these crowns on, the, on their heads that, that, that harken back to a place like Exodus 19, or 1 Peter, even Revelation chapter 1, where we're told that God gathers for himself a kingdom of priests. So what we have represented with the 24 elders is a representation of all of the redeemed and those who have been reconciled with God. 
And they are there worshiping as well. And along with the 24 elders are the four creatures who represent general creation. Three representing animal life, right? The, the lion, the ox, and the eagle. Likely representing wildlife, lion king of the jungle, domestic animals represented by the ox, and then the animals of the sky and sea together represented with the eagle. And then the fourth face is a human face, representing humanity, all of humanity. And so what you've got there is uh, 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 creatures with four faces that represent all of creation singing and worshiping God. And they're filled with eyes because eyes represent, in, in, in the book of Revelation, wisdom. In other words, they're doing what they've been designed to do. They are living wisely by worshiping and giving glory to God as God's creation. Their wisdom comes from their worship as they understand why they were created and what they were created for as they're worshiping before their creator. Now, in addition to these creatures, there's also a picture of creation in general in the peace and harmony that's there. John refers to this sea of glass that represents the calm waters to contrast really what we so often see about water in Scripture, which is the seas that represent danger and chaos. And so when we see this, we're, we're, we see that there is this calming aspect of God's peace, uh, kind of it's God's peace ruling through his new creation. And it comes from the front of the throne, which represents God's peace all over the earth. Not chaos, but shalom peace on the earth. And so around the throne then, John sees and hears lightning and thunder. This is the first of four mentions of this same phrase, lightning and thunder, each of which happens, the next three times we're going to see this happen, happens after the series of judgments that are going to take place over the next few chapters. Judgments that we know as the seven seals, the seven bowls, and the seven trumpets. And at each one of the end of those series of judgments, we see these lightning and thunder is repeated again, just like it is here in Revelation chapter 4, which of course is again a reference to God's judging activity. If those who were receiving this on the earth, we're doubting whether or not God would judge sin and evil, whether or not God would come back and avenge those who have been persecuted by evil people. They're reminded again that God will bring his judgment and that he'll bring it by a holy fire represented here in the whole, represented, or I should say he'll bring it by the Holy Spirit represented as a holy fire here. You see the Holy Spirit, the seven spirits who are also seen as, uh, the seven spirits who represent the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit also seen here as a fire typically working to purify, and to purify by judgment, both are in view here. So again, just like the rainbow, thunder, lightning, fire, all of those things represent judgment. And that's what we're going to see actually happen in the next few chapters here. But this is why then, the elders are crying out as they worship, Holy, 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 or I should say the creatures are the ones who are crying out, holy, holy, holy. A phrase that brings us back to a scene like Isaiah chapter 6. They're crying out for the holiness of God. They know that when the holiness of God reigns on the earth, that the goodness of God and everything that God is will begin to reign in the way that it's supposed to in the new creation. But of course, in order for that to happen, judgment over sin and evil must take place. And so when you take all this in, what you, of course, see in this is, is a, in the heavenly throne room is a, is a worship service, essentially. Uh, but a worship service who's calling out for God to act and waiting for God to act and confident at the same time that God is going to act on his promises. And I think when we look at this, it becomes a little bit difficult for us in a way because we see so much of the impending judgment that is coming. But in the end, 
realizing that judgment brings forth hope in the end of it all. And so what John is doing in all this is that he's inviting us to participate. He's inviting us not only to just see this heavenly scene of worship, but also to participate in it as worshipers ourselves. So if we're asking what we're supposed to do with this scene here, what's the point? It's first to take confidence in God's plan, but at the same time, it's also to participate along with the other living creatures and the elders who are there representing worship of the one true God. Notice that it says in this chapter that these creatures who are worshiping, they do this all day and all night. In other words, it's their existence to worship right there in the throne of God, and it's what they do. And as they are representatives of what creation is supposed to be doing, we can see from this perspective of heaven that we are called in the same way to be worshipers, to be worshipers constantly, all the time. It doesn't doesn't mean that we're going to literally be in front of a throne. It doesn't mean that we're going to literally even be in a worship service all the time. But it means that what we are called to do as we live in this world is to worship with every moment, with every opportunity that we have in what we're doing. And that as the glory of God is celebrated and praised everywhere in heaven, that we're meant to mirror that same kind of response as we live out faithfully in this world. I think as we consider that, at the same time, what we learn from God's words to his people here, especially the people who are struggling under persecution, especially the people who are struggling to live out their faith faithfully in their context in the first century, that they are also brought to a place of worship. That they are called to persevere in worship, the same way we're called to persevere in worship. When things are not going well, when we're struggling for meaning in life, when we're struggling for purpose in this world, when we need joy, when we need clarity, when we need peace, the call is to worship. We're simply called to step into worship during those times. And I know it sounds so simple in a lot of ways, but it is so essential and profound. We should think about worship as kind of stepping back into center, getting back to the place where we should be. As Eugene Peterson says, we worship so that we live in response to and from this center, the living God. Failure to worship consigns us to a life of of spasms and jerks at the mercy of every advertisement, every seduction, and every siren. If there is no center, there is no circumference. People who do not worship are swept into a vast restlessness, epidemic in the world with no steady direction and no sustained purpose. As this chapter shows us, I want to close with a few ideas about what this chapter shows us about the importance of worship and what we see coming from this chapter. And first of all, It shows us several things that worship uh, does and how worship affects us. First, it says this, worship acknowledges God as God. Because we worship God, we acknowledge that he is God and we are not, which seems obvious, but this is an important part of Revelation, that God is completely God, sovereign and powerful, that he is in control and he's bringing his purposes to bear and fulfilling all of his promises, and that he cannot be stopped in what he is doing. You can see that the chorus of the four living creatures and how they're sitting around the throne with their gaze and attention on God, they call him the Lord God Almighty, who cannot be stopped. He is stronger than anything else that could come on him. And he is the eternal one, the one who was, who is, and who is to come. The one who is in complete control of history. Secondly, worship ascribes worthiness to God. You'll see from the 24 elders in this chapter that they are singing about the worthiness of God, which reminds us, of that, of that one of the main functions of worship is to ascribe to God how much he is really worth to us. And speaking of worth, we also see the elders in this scene. 
who have their crowns on their heads, the thing that is worth the most to them, they take off their crown during worship and they throw it before the throne of God as a way of saying the thing that is worth most to me I am laying down in worship because the one who is in front of me is worth more and more beautiful than anything else I could possess. And so it takes us to this question of compared to all that this life is and all that this world has to offer us, how much is God worth to us? Worship pledges our hearts to God. Proper worship is an intensely personal thing. It's us pledging our hearts to God in relationship and our allegiance to Jesus as as King. As we saw from Jesus' messages to the churches of Revelation in chapters 2 and 3, that the core of his message was a prophetic message that was calling them back out of their temptation to worship Rome, out of idolatry, which of course was a heart issue, out of their allegiance to the Roman emperor, calling them back to their allegiance to Jesus as their king. And worship brings us back to center to remind us who is actually the rightful king of our hearts and the rightful king of the universe. Worship brings us contentment. Of course, so much of why idolatry often takes roots in our, heart, in our hearts is because we are searching for contentment. We're searching for contentment in this world and everything that's around us. You may remember the list that we presented over the first couple weeks, which had laid out what the Roman doctrines were during the first century, what they expected Roman citizens to participate in. Things like, you know, calling the Roman emperor uh, the son of God or Lord. Things like believing that it was the Roman empire that was bringing the kingdom of the gods to earth. So many of those promises had to do with things, or statements had to do with promises that Rome would bring ultimately the golden age of humanity to the earth. Another way we might put that is providing a kingdom of heaven of sorts on earth. Worship brings us to the place where we are trusting in the holiness and goodness of God so that we can rest in the fact that his kingdom will satisfy us completely, which brings contentment. And it helps to root out the idolatry that is based on things in this world, giving us contentment. Worship gives us life. There's an old Christian confession that says that it's man's purpose to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Worship does this. Worship reminds us of the fact that it is our calling and it is our end and purpose to glorify God and to enjoy his presence. That's why we were created. And this, is, this gives us life in the sense that it kind of gives us vitality. I know that many times when uh, I'm getting ready on Sunday morning to come up and preach, those songs of worship, those times of worshiping with, uh, with all of you in this place give me life. Like they enliven my spirit. They kind of they kind of give me uh, energy to come up here and even, even preach on Sunday mornings. And it's not just because of the songs. It's not just because of the, the, the band we have, although they're, they're awesome. They do a great job. It's because of the fact that we get to spend some focused time on the worship of God together. And that's truly life-giving even in the moment. And finally, worship transforms us. The book of Revelation is not given to us just to inform us about who God is or even about what God is doing, but it's meant to transform our lives. When John is brought up into heaven for this vision, it's not so that he would just be informed, but that his life and perspective would actually change. When Jesus speaks to the seven churches of Revelation, he is calling many of them to overcome and to change. And I don't think it's any coincidence that out of chapter 3, where Jesus is encouraging and challenging all those churches to change and to overcome, that we get into chapter 4, which is the response of worship. Worship is our primary way, is the primary way in which we change when we meet with God. So in this book, the last book of the Bible, 
the culmination of the story of everything that God is doing, worship is so central. Again, we're going to see it over and over again through this book. And we should learn from that, realizing that worship is the point of our lives as well. Worship is where it starts, and worship is where it ends in this, in this, in this vision. We see worship open up this vision in chapters 4 and 5, and worship is going to end this vision in Revelation chapter 21. And in the middle of it all, worship happens repeatedly. Again, as this vision begins, the first thing that John sees is, and the first thing that he's taken to, is a room where, where, um, where all the creatures are worshiping. So how do we respond? Well, I think, simply put, by becoming more faithful worshipers. People who worship God in every situation. People who understand the blessing of being people who can worship God. I think one of the, one of the profound blessings of being a Christian is the reality that God has put his spirit in us. That we commune literally with the Spirit of God in us as new creations. We don't have to go to a temple. We don't have to go to a priest. We don't have to go to a, a church building to worship God. That at all times and at any times, God is with us so that we can worship Him. And that's what we're called to do with our lives, with every moment. And so what does that look like for you? What does it look like for you? It might be to take inventory of who and what we are worshiping. And worship makes all the difference in our lives in the end. As human beings, what we, are, we are always worshiping something, and what we worship determines much more than we often realize. What we see from Revelation chapter 4 is that worship determines nothing less than the course of our lives and the course of our eternal destiny. So this is where we get to the point where we've gone through all of this stuff, and I say to you, if you get one thing out of this sermon, I want you to get this. <laughs> So here it is. If you get one thing out of this sermon, this is what I believe Revelation chapter 4 is teaching us more than anything, that we are called to be worshipers. And so whatever that looks like for you, make one step, our response is make at least one step into being a more faithful, consistent, and devoted worshiper of God. And let's start by praying that God would do that in us this morning. We're going to sing a song, by the way, after we pray. Uh, in which you're going to see a lot of these words that we just saw in this scene taken right out of that and put to, put to this song, uh, put to music. So it's going to be a great opportunity for us to reflect in worship. Well, let's pray. Lord, we come to you this morning thanking you that uh, you give us your words so that you can help us to see where we are often blind to see or have forgotten, and that you refresh and remind us of your goodness towards us. And as we engage with a chapter like this, it's, it's, uh, there's a lot going on here. There's a lot of activity, uh, a lot of symbolism, a lot of uh, kind of things that we need to work to understand, but we thank you that your word uh, clearly presents to us your goodness towards us. We ask, Lord, that as we are called in one of these ways to respond as, better, as, as worshipers who are more faithful, who are more devoted, as worshipers who enjoy the presence of our Creator, the presence of our Redeemer, we ask, Spirit, that you would do a work in our hearts to lead us to be people who are better at, uh, at focusing on the things that really matter in our lives, who more clearly see what should be first and foremost in our hearts. And Lord, even if there's work that needs to be done in terms of rooting out spiritual idols that have grabbed our attention and have distracted us, we ask that you would do that work in us. 
And as we respond and worship this morning with this last song, we ask that you would guide us into worship. You would allow us to be worshipers who are free and satisfied and full of joy, the presence of our Creator. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In just a moment, we'll rejoin our pastor for today's closing thoughts. But first, we wanted to thank you for tuning in. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona, and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com. Now, some closing thoughts from our pastor. I want to say uh, thank you to Daniel and Janelle for stepping in and leading kind of last minute. Fortunately, Aaron and his family have got, had, had a sickness kind of sweep through their family this past week. And it was, it's not COVID, but uh, they, they got got the sickness kind of went through their family and so Aaron wasn't able to lead and kind of last minute we called on these guys to step in and lead and they've done a great job this morning and so would you give them a hand we appreciate appreciate you guys so uh Kirsten are you a prayer partner Okay, all right. How you doing? Good to see you. <laughs> all right, so Kirsten, I didn't know if she was going to get baptized again or if she's a prayer partner, but Kirsten Snary is our prayer partner uh, for this service, and so if you need somebody to pray with, Kirsten is there, the right-hand side over here, uh, to pray with you. Also, if you have any other prayer needs, we would encourage you to write them down on our prayer cards as you leave here this morning. Uh, they're on the table uh, back there with a the cross on top of them, so as you leave, you can you can write those, uh, those, those, those prayer requests on those cards, and we pray over those things each week as a staff, as a prayer team, and as an elder team. And so we look forward to joining with you in your prayer request. Um, you can drop them in the offering stands as you leave here this morning to make sure they get to the right place. And uh, we, we consider it a privilege to join with you in prayer. So great to worship with you all this morning. Uh, we pray that as you leave this place that you would find uh, a blessing in God and that you would be able to worship uh, with each day that comes throughout this week. And as we look forward to next week, continuing in the book of Revelation, pray that you would be blessed and encouraged. So we'll see you next week. Have a great week. Thank you for joining us for this week's message. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona, and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com.